Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. You know, we never really understood that term dog days of summer. It's common here in the U.S. And I think it was really to talk about like, you know, kind of being lazy and just those warm, too hot days in the summer where you just want to not do a lot. And then I got a dog and my dog just loves to lay in the sun through the window and just sleep all day. I'm like, oh, that's what that means. And that's why it's hard to always want to go, go, go and get everything done. But I know a lot of you are on vacation or holiday right now. And some of you are catching up on the podcast as you travel. So hopefully you're taking me to some fun places. I'm teasing. I know that's not exactly how podcasts work. But today I invited my good friend and fellow fraud fighter Robert Caps back to the podcast. Robert was on episode 103 and 105. Episode 103, we learned about his career path and you know how he started out owning an internet business before he graduated high school, all the way to when he founded and led the trust and safety team for StubHub through some really pivotal transformational times for the business. And really, it was uncharted territory, but how he navigated that. And then the next week on episode 105, he brought along our dear friend that we have in common, Eric Bowles, his former Secret Service. And they both talked about how they founded you know, one of the best investigative teams I've seen in fraud prevention. And it is a form of fraud prevention to investigate and work with federal law enforcement to prosecute your fraud fight, your biggest fraud rings and cases. Because as Eric mentioned on that episode, they actually saw a huge dip in fraud after those arrests. So anyway, that's what we talked about on those. I highly recommend those episodes. I got a lot of great feedback from those and people really interested in it. And Robert's one of those people that I may not get to talk to as much as I want to. But once we do, we just it's as if no time has passed and we don't even realize how much time is passing when we talk. So that can sometimes be a challenge, but a good challenge because I learned so much from him. He has a unique perspective. He's been in the technology space and the startup space for over 20 years. So he's seen highs and lows and he's been through a lot of downturns and uncertainty, but he has made it through and, and better each time. And so that wasn't necessarily what I was intending on talking about today. I had asked some of you on LinkedIn to provide some questions that you wanted us to answer. I kind of was thinking, okay, I've talked about uncertainty in the market for the last few weeks and I don't want to be Debbie Downer too long. So we'll just, you know, answer these questions and move on. But that's not what happened in this conversation. You'll hear that. And I think that's for the better. I got to hear a good friend who I trust perspective on things that I hadn't thought of before about why we're in this mess, about what could happen. And when I say this mess, I just mean like the economy overall and the uncertainty and then the impacts of that uncertainty on ourselves, on our bosses, on our coworkers, on everyone. 
I think it's just safe to assume that everybody's brain is thinking about this a lot, even if it's in the background, even if it's subconsciously. And that was really what we ended up talking about. But it was a productive conversation. It wasn't complaining or being really negative. It was being realistic. And Robert helped me think more about why some of the companies that we're seeing are laying off fraud and risk people. That I think has surprised a lot of us because for a long time we assumed we were recession proof. At least we kind of were on the last one. And we know what's going to happen. We're already seeing it, right? Whenever there's an economic downturn and uncertainty in the entire market, we see fraud go up. Whether that's because their demand for cheaper items, because they're not actually paying them, or paying the full price or even, you know, at cost, that demand for cheaper items goes up. So fraudsters are going to use stolen credit cards to purchase those items and sell them on secondary markets. Or we're seeing a lot of people who would never consider themselves a fraudster, but are dipping their toe in that water or committing first party fraud or refund fraud or wanting to learn because it's a way that they can feed their families. So fraud's going up, fraud's costing more money, but yet we're seeing companies cut those teams. And I thought it was really interesting, his perspective on that. And I think it would be helpful to all of you that are seeing the same thing and that that's impacting your stress levels even more. He also talks about what he's found helpful when he's been in a downturn or been laid off or isn't sure, like kind of sees the tea leaves that this job just isn't the one he wants to have for long term, whatever that job is, and had some really good advice about that. So I think, you know, we can put it in career advice in that bucket. And then we just talked about why it's so important now more than ever to enjoy what you do. And it's not just about getting that next J-O-B. Now, you may need to get an in-between job just to kind of survive and, and flow and until you get the next good one that you love in your career. That's always going to be a, a possibility and everybody's reality is different. But I'm going to stop talking about the conversation and let you listen in. How about that? <laughs> But I will say, because we ran out of time, I actually had an appointment I had to get to, and we talked a little too much before recording, which Curry's needs to get better at. But it's just so fun sometimes to have an excuse to talk to a friend, and then you're like, oh, wait, we have to do this. But next week, I'm going to have Robert on for next Tuesday, and we're going to talk a lot more about answering the questions that people have asked. The majority of questions are around creating a business case, and I've talked about this a few times on the podcast, but I think it's always good to hear from other people too, because there's no one way to do things. And the importance of really showing and, and demonstrating on a regular basis to leadership and other departments, just how critical fraud prevention is and that we do so much more than just canceling orders or whatever they may think we do. As well as a question came up on the retailer call that I host recently that really was a good discussion topic. And I knew that Robert would have some really good advice on this. And that is how to help your team basically get paid more. There are some leaders that are concerned. Hey, I don't think we're paying our people enough because they're classified as customer service or because our HR department doesn't know where to go to be able to provide comparable salaries. So they're just kind of guessing and, and it's not accurate. And a lot of times you're then losing analysts and really good people that know your business. And so that's what we will talk about next week. And I will make sure I'll. I think Robert and I both will try to make sure that we stay on topic with that. And we did start to talk about it a little bit today. So 
listen in on that. But we really know that this topic deserves so much more time and deep dive into because, again, there's more than one way to do things. And I can provide some examples from other people that have worked. Robert can provide what's worked for him and arguably hired some of the best people in the world on his team for StubHub. He will say that. I will say that. Anyone that worked with that team during that time, and there still are several people from that team still there at the company, all of those people are rock stars. And so I think if you're going to hear any kind of management advice and advocating for your people advice and all of that, it should come from Robert. So we will be back next week to talk more about that. But in the meantime, I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's just really a conversation between friends about what's going on in the world. And I'd really be interested to know if this is a format that you like. All right. I will talk to you on Thursday, but I am looking forward to hearing what you think and talk to you soon. I hope you enjoy this conversation with my friend, Robert Capps. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Robert Caps, welcome back to Fraudology. I'm so glad to have you come back and join me. Thanks. It's good to talk to you again. Well, you were on a few a couple months ago and lots of people really enjoyed learning from you and your experiences. And then you brought our friend Eric Bowles on to talk about, did you call it, just call it kinetic consequences? Is that what you were calling it a minute ago? <laughs> yeah, on the pre-call. <laughs> Bring kinetic consequences to actors. Yeah, definitely. Yes, yes. And the fact that it's usually there aren't real life consequences to bad actors. That's why that episode was so popular. And I had a mm -hmm. feeling it would be. And you've been in trust and safety, fraud, cybersecurity for longer than me even. And 
I always enjoy our conversations. One of our friends that we have in common, and I didn't tell you this before on purpose, but I mentioned to her that I was going to talk to you today and for the podcast. And she said, I could listen to you and Robert talk about anything for hours and hours. And she's someone that's very picky. So I was like, wow, okay, then. Let's talk about more things. Right? (laughs) All the things. But in preparation for this, I put an ask out on my LinkedIn and just said, hey, I'm going to have Robert on my podcast tomorrow. What questions do you want me to ask him? And so we received a few and I figured we'd just kind of go through them and talk about them. And there are things that fraud fighters are thinking about and worried about now, as well as just in general. So hopefully it'll be helpful to other people as well. Especially right now, especially in the economic conditions we find ourselves in. Yeah, I feel like it. I said this in last week's episodes too, but like, I feel like I'm continually hopping on the podcast and just being like, I'm sorry. <laughs> Things feel sucky right now, but they'll get Things better. Things are sucky right now. That's a good point. Yeah, they are. Not just feel, they are. The reality is that we're in a really not great economic environment and that's weighing heavily on many industries, on many teams and on many people. It weighs heavily on me. I hear you. It's weighing heavily on you. And if you pull anybody else, I don't think you're going to find many people that isn't weighing on in some way, shape or form. It's a very good point. And I think for the longest time, we've, those of us in fraud prevention and trust and safety have kind of jokingly said, well, job security. But then we see (laughs) on LinkedIn, we see a lot of people getting laid off in our field and that makes shit get real, real fast. So I guess actually that wasn't even going to be a question on the thing, but I knew that we just press record and so But you were in the space during the last downturn. I was too. What did you learn from that? And or what would you tell other people that are fraud fighters in leadership or in a, any other position? What would be your advice right now for them? Because things are crappy right now and uncertain. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So I kind of lost count on the number of downturns I've been part of at this point. point. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm coming up on 30 years in internet startups, 28 years or something like that. I've seen a few downturns. First of all, they do get better. You will get jobs again. We're not in a situation where, like we saw with manufacturing and what we now call the Rust Belt, where jobs disappeared and they just never came back. That mm. isn't what we're in right now. So Please don't lose hope <laughs> if you're out there. If you're one of the people who's affected and you're you're struggling to find another job. You will find another job. It, and if you're off right now, spend some time increasing your skill set. Broaden your skill set. Look at new things that you didn't have time to do before. There's new industries that you can get involved with. There are new roles you could potentially be looking for because if anything's constant, it's change. And we're going to see a lot of change in the risk, fraud, cybersecurity industry. There's been change since I built my first risk team back in the 2005, 2006 range. Those teams don't look anything like the teams look today. And the constant is more skills are required to do the same job. You're working with more technology. When we started in 2005 with some of the things, it was all about SQL queries and and Excel spreadsheets and manual reporting. You might get a dashboard from somebody in a, in a business intelligence team and you sort of pulled the dots together manually. And we're now using a lot more systems than we used before. We're now using risk models. We're now using outsourced fraud tools, case managers. We're pulling in data sets live from from multiple providers. We're calculating velocities in real time and acting on them versus what's the outcome of 
last night's report that ran. <laughs> like you, no one else can see this, but I can see it. I can see the pain on your face because you lived through this. And, and so, um, it's like, I, and often I think this is just life, right? You kind of forget like where we were when you yeah, just, yeah. when you're growing as quickly as the industry. And I feel like that's been my experience. I often will say that myself and the industry like grew up at the same time together. And that's one reason yeah. why I'm so lucky. Yeah, you kind of forget that. But yeah, we were so reactive because that's all we could do. And now sometimes being proactive is that is almost harder. You know, I was talking to a merchant the other day, actually in event ticketing, and that's a space well, because you're at your time at Subhub, how they were like, you know, I think a lot of people forget that we don't really have year over year metrics that we can rely on for the last several years. We're flying blind and yeah. retailers that had saw a huge spike in sales or delivery or whatever are seeing are having similar issues. It's different, but similar. You can't, you know, and of course, if you are comparing your numbers of this August to August of 2020, you're either going to be looking really good or really bad. And so there's like that mix, right, between proactive and reactive. But to your point, you're so right that the industry will continue to change. We need to keep changing with it. I think the question a lot of people then ask is like, well, what skills should I learn then? And I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but you know, the, one of the most popular episodes I've had in a while was the episode I had with PJ Rohal at Sion a couple of weeks ago about career mm -hmm. advice and yeah. navigating your own career. And you and I have done that many times. You've had to pick yourself up and start over a few times. I have to more than once. But I like doing that. Yeah, <laughs> I true. like doing that. That's true. And, and before we get too far into what skills, yeah. just highlighting the fact mm -hmm. that if you're affected and you're out of a job right now, it's a really great opportunity to evaluate some new skills while you're interviewing. Look at the jobs that are being posted. Look at the things that are, are being required and pick one of them that interests you that you don't have and start mm -hmm. working on it. It's going to make you more marketable in the meantime. And, and so it'll keep you feeling like you're being productive too. Cause totally. I think the biggest yeah, yeah, risk yeah. is sitting on the couch and feeling like you're worth, I mean, to me, if I don't feel like I'm making an impact, I start yeah. spiraling. I, so I feel, yeah. <laughs> I know. And that's what, yeah. Like, so I think that that's really, really good advice too, is yeah, do what you can. But also I would add that you don't always know what's going to be needed. I mean, I never could have charted True. my career path. I never thought there'd be a need or a desire for a fraud podcast or other things that I've been creating and doing. So leave some room open for interpretation, but keep putting yeah, one totally. foot in front of the other. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just keep in mind that this is also an opportunity because a lot of folks are so busy in the day to day grind that they are they don't make time to look at new skills. They don't make time for self-improvement for any of those things. Now, I, I totally recognize and, and I want to name the fact that out of a job is hard. It's impactful. It's stressful. There are a lot of emotions that come along with that. And we can't ignore that that's competing for the attention of someone who's also looking at increasing their skill set. It's like being on an airplane. They talk about if you're traveling with a child, put your mask on first. You got to take care of yourself first before you can do anything else. But if you have some spare cycles, it's a good time to spend them in the direction of increasing your skill set. It makes you more marketable to folks that, that are looking for people on their teams. And also, this is a good time. I, let me uh, sort of highlight one of the things we talked about in the pre-call, some of the challenges. The impact to trust and safety, fraud, risk, payments, teams has not been level across all industries. One thing to keep in mind is that customer service and fraud are often looked at in the same lens. Right. So that that impacts pay. And we can go back to this topic mm -hmm. later in the call if we want or in the podcast if we want. But 
it also impacts how senior executives look at the humans that are in those positions. Right. And so when you're looking at an economic downturn, you're looking at a volumetric reduction in transactions or business for the for the business. You tend to look at customer service functions as well. I just don't if I'm only going to have 100,000 transactions instead of a million, I only need 10 percent of my workforce who's going to deal with the customers. And that isn't actually true. (laughs) It's not it's not linear, especially not in fraud and risk, (laughs) because during downturns, you tend to see fewer good orders but more bad orders, especially as a ratio of the good orders. And so impacting those teams is a bit of snipping the nose off in front of the face. I don't think I got that right. But anyway, it's close enough. Everybody gets it. And senior executives in different industries have different frames of reference. And so if you're in e-commerce, the chances are that your executives have lived through downturns and do understand the pattern of behavior in the business cycle and know that fraud and risk can actually increase during downturns due to friendly fraud and other sort of issues, people trying to survive. And so that's not necessarily the best place to cut all the people, <laughs> right? You might need to look other other places. Another industry, another nascent industry where the executives don't have that perspective is one that's very near and dear to me in my current focus, fintech and blockchain slash cryptocurrency. We've seen a lot of loss of positions in that industry. It's specifically because the executives in those in those organizations don't necessarily have the background to know that compliance and, and risk aren't things that can just be reduced wholesale in a down economy because the cash flow coming in is down, right? You still have fraudsters that are trying to use the system. You still have to comply with rules and regulations. You have a lot at stake if you don't get those functions right. And unfortunately, we've got some some pretty green executive teams on those those organizations that don't necessarily understand that. And so it is kind of risky to be in fraud and risk and compliance in, in that space right now because you're up against a spreadsheet. You're not up against experience. So your mileage may vary. No, I, I really appreciated your your perspective on that because that's been something that I think, you know, I think I mentioned it just a few minutes ago, like that's kind of caught a few people off guard because those of us who have been in this space for a long time in e-commerce and marketplaces, et cetera, we're kind of used to feeling like we're recession proof. I mean, I mentioned on this past Thursday's episode that I did solo, like I went to my CFO like around 2009 or so when other people were getting laid off. And I said, how do I get myself on that list? Because I was just so burnt out. And anytime anyone left, I got a little bit of their job, whether it was in my industry or not. Like it was just, oh, Chris can do that. Oh, Chris can, you know, I was like the Swiss army knife. And I was just like, so how do I get on that list? And he's like, oh, you're going to be turning the lights off. And I know that should have been a compliment, but I was not compensated the way I was supposed to be. Not even a little bit. That was mostly supposed to be on stock and everything else. And so it just was, that was when I realized, oh, okay, I need to do something else. But also I think that's what we're used to, right? Is thinking that fraud people are going to be the ones turning the lights off. And here we're seeing that in newer organizations, whether it's in crypto or it's in neobanks or other pieces like that, where we're seeing a lot of them get laid off. And I'm confused because those companies aren't closing their doors. And if anything, a lot of those companies are already been targets for fraud and they're going to continue as everyone in the economy 
is looking for more money. And unfortunately, the lines are getting blurrier and blurrier between fraud and just oh, like abuse. And yeah, so there's, yeah, yeah. you know, lots of people. So I do think that I thought your perspective on that was really interesting where it's knowing that. And then I go back to thinking about some of the conversations I've had with people in the crypto space in the last few months and years. And I realized as Robert's talking and realizing I hadn't put two and two together, but a lot of the conversations I've had with them have been around things that we struggled with a decade ago around trying to increase kind of the the understanding or the demonstration of why fraud prevention is so important Mm -hmm. until it's too late. And we've seen several headlines around cryptocurrency and NFT marketplaces, et cetera, that have ATOs and this and that. That's what happens, right? When you, but these are the things, it's like the last 10%. And a lot of companies aren't thinking about that because they're looking at top line and just focused on that. And they haven't been through that. So I hadn't thought about that in that perspective, but those green executives, the ones who might be brilliant in the crypto world, but they just haven't been around around the sun enough times or they haven't been in the industry (laughs) enough times. I don't know which one it is. This is also a weird industry. I have an old adage with startups that the amount of effort you put into risk reduction in a startup product is really related to the amount of other people's money that isn't your investors that's in the company. And other people's money that isn't your investors. Correct. Yeah. I mean, investors Hmm. are there. They expect to lose their money for most of the startups. I mean, let's let's just be clear, like VCs place bets all the time and they're not they're not expecting return on every one of them. They're expecting to hit a home run on a few of them and Mm -hmm. some of them might break even. If you talk to ABC, that's really what they're doing in, in large part. And so for startups, when we talk about minimum viable products, when we talk about bringing products to market. If you're early in one of those organizations, you're not getting a lot of focus on the risk side because the downside of being wrong, of not having fraud taken care of is really related to your investor's money right? It's not related really to the consumers directly. Now, crypto is weird in this because it is your customer's money from day one. The losses can be catastrophic. And for every one of the customers that has cryptocurrencies or NFTs or any other digital assets stored in a custodial way in on your platform, let's look at Celsius, let's look at Voyager, we'll look at a bunch of different companies. That's a really good example, right? There's billions of dollars in bankruptcy court right now <laughs> of average people because they hadn't really hedged their balance or the bets. They haven't really dealt with contagion, their risks in, a, in an appropriate way. And they got caught out and regular people are getting hurt. So crypto is a weird one in that it violates my old rule around startups and MVPs and protections. So I'm kind of revising that one in my head as we speak. But as a whole, fraud risk, as you said, as we talked about a little while ago, the fraud risk team's ability to live through a downturn is really related to the executives who are making decisions about staffing and their understanding experience of how reducing those teams will impact the bottom line. And it's not linear. (laughs) It's definitely not linear because you have elastic demand, right? For a product, which is going to have an elastic volume of customer service calls that customer service, it's supply and demand, but fraud isn't, it's inelastic. An attacker will continue to attack until they run out of things to attack and run out of value to extract. And so while your volumes of transactions go down, your volume of fraud doesn't generally go down. And we've seen that over and over, regardless of industry. So they they will keep attacking you until they kill you, basically. They will consume all of the resources until the host is no longer. And if you don't have effective protections in whatever industry you're in, it could be a business ending event. A fraud attack could be a business ending event. 
Yeah. And I hear the merchants who are listening or the practitioners that are listening to this being like, yep, yep. I know these things, you know, but it's helpful it. to hear someone else say it. Or maybe they didn't think this of podcast. it in that Point way. for your executives here. <laughs> There's been a few people that have tried to do that. But I think that hearing it from other perspectives from that 10,000 foot view can sometimes be really helpful because yeah. oftentimes when fear and uncertainty and doubt comes in, you're unable to pull yourself up and look from that 10,000 foot view. You're just looking at right in front of you and right. that's survival and it's important. But I think what I also hear you say is just because some companies aren't understanding the value of fraud prevention and in some ways these teams are first or second to go after, you know, recruiting and sales or marketing, that doesn't mean that 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 they're not important. That doesn't mean that they are not needed or that they should have been let go. In our perspective, now we're not, we don't know everyone's books, et cetera, but just putting yourself in those shoes though, like, okay, yeah, we can all say, I don't feel like I should have been let go, but then what, right? Like, what do you do next? Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. I do see other companies do recognize that this is the time to staff up in fraud. I mean, banking, financial institutions, some fintechs, some e-com, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess where, where I would say is that not everybody is contracting right now. And that that was the point of that original conversation. I think we totally wandered down the path and went, oh, where did we come? We what, what, what was back there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. Holly will change oh. her mind and be like, oh my gosh. Maybe I didn't want to hear a conversation <laughs> from Robert and Curry, whatever. <laughs> it's okay. So, so getting back to the, the origin of that conversation. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the point is that the impact on fraud teams is, is not equal in all industries and not equal in all companies. And so some teams are still hiring. Mm -hmm. Some organizations continue to hire. Some have paused hiring to see what the impact is. I think that in a large part, we've seen a lot of reactive reductions in skill or in, in workforce, uh, a lot of reduction in workforce that maybe was too much. And so we're going to see things move forward a little bit. We're going to see things change a little bit as far as the economic conditions. I think we're going to see some more hiring. I don't think it's going to be as deep as people have cut so far. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's going to be as bad as people are expecting. And so we may have overcut in some industries and there may be some hiring that happens again soon. I think what will what will really show us is when we look at quarterly returns for some of the public companies that have cut and we'll see what their profitability is in the next quarter after the cuts. Mm -hmm. And if the profitability is way up, clearly they overcut. And there might be some room for some more hiring. Stay tuned. We'll see where that goes. But right. like I said, there are other places that are, that are still hiring. There are other organizations that are still hiring. Some have just paused temporarily. Some are not allowing rehires when people leave, but they're not losing the headcount. Mm -hmm. So, right, they're just pausing that. They go down a little bit, see what happens and, and then go from there. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot of difference. And, and so if you're in one specific industry, look at some of the other industries. If you're really looking for a position right now, there's still a lot out there. I see posts every day come across LinkedIn and, and some of the groups I'm in talking about, I need a fraud analyst. I need a data scientist. I need a mm, something, right? A reporting yeah. person. It hasn't stopped everywhere. Yeah. And that's that's very true. And I think also looking for you might need to just look for the job right now for a little bit and then go towards broadening those skills. If product is really interesting to you, maybe take a product course or attend. There's some interesting organizations around product recently. Just I just picked product out of the blue, but I know you today are actually coding, right? You're teaching your or reteaching yourself how to code. I am. I because am. it's a skill I took a that you want to build. 
<laughs> to talk here. Yeah. I mean, I, I haven't written software since 1990. <laughs> so I sat down and started relearning, well, started learning a new language and sort of rehashing some of my old skills and I'm actually enjoying it. Go figure. So that's one of the things that, that that's really great about taking advantage of a potential negative. You got some time on your hands. You can actually pick up a new skill and, and try something new. And there's so many free classes online. There's so many resources that did not exist in the 90s and in the early 2000s that are just there for the taking now and including some of the unemployment benefits for some of the states that some of the listeners here, at least in the United States, they might include access to paid content. Mm-hmm. Right. And and so there there are things that are available yeah. that weren't available before that can help you out and then to, to support you through this time. I think that's it. That's really good because I think, you know, sometimes we just think, oh gosh, I just need, need, need. and we do need a job, right? But there mm-hmm. are also, there are other things. So there are job marketplaces or other things where you can maybe just do some temporary admin work, right? It's not fraud. It's not going to last forever, but just something for a while and, and learn something else. Yeah. But I love your suggestion at looking at job descriptions that interest you. Cause I do think that what sometimes gets lost when people ask me and I get it a lot. And I know you do too. Sometimes like, what should I be doing? Like, what's the one skill I need to improve on? Or what's the one certification I need? And there's not an answer that's good for that because there's a lot of different types of jobs for a lot of different types of companies and we aren't linear and it's going to grow and change. But I think learning about something you don't know about or going for a job description that you're like, wow, this job would be really fun. What does it have in here that maybe I don't feel as strong on as another? Is it a hard skill? Is it soft skill? It's probably more of a hard skill. I think finding what you love to do is the key. Our parents wouldn't necessarily get a job because that's what they love to do. They get a job to pay the bills. And Mm -hmm. that's there's no shame in that. But for people like you and me and a lot of the people that listen, we need to be engaged. We need to be challenged. We need our brain to have a problem to solve. We want and need to be fulfilled. We need to feel like we're having an impact on the world. And so going towards something that excites you rather than just, I can do this. That would be my best job advice to people, career advice. Cause I, I mean, even as a consultant, I would start do things cause I can, not because I want to. Right. And then that isn't fun for anyone. I, yeah. I mean, I, I get you there. I, I'd actually offer a different interpretation. Please there. do. So our parents largely didn't need to have both parents working for basic necessities to be met. Good point. Right. A parent could stay home. One parent could work and they could work eight hours a day, five days a week. And they could come home and they could have a nice dinner after a 10 minute drive from the office and they could spend time with the kids and they could do all the things they wanted to do. And they had a much better quality of life. Let's name this, right? Yeah. A much better quality of life than we face or even our kids will face. And good, bad, or indifferent. And I think there's a lot of churn happening in this space right now. Good, bad, or indifferent. People in the workforce right now want to feel fulfilled because it's such a large piece of their life. They spend Mm. an hour going to work. Mm -hmm. They spend nine or 10 hours at work. They come home and they, after an hour's drive, they spend time thinking about work. Work is their lives. And the weekends are the breaks between those, those things. And so if we're not feeling fulfilled, if we're not feeling challenged, if we're not feeling like we're making a difference, 
it's hard to feel happy in that situation. And we, we sort of like dance around that subject by saying, mm-hmm. oh, we just want to f- be fulfilled. No, we want to be fulfilled because work is so much of our life today. I suspect a few people are letting, are like listening to this and going, oh, wow. Oh, like, yeah. That I'm nodding my head. So yeah. True. <laughs> like, yeah. That's the problem is that we, mm. when we compare ourselves to a previous generation, we're comparing ourselves apples and oranges. <laughs> the environment is completely different. It is very difficult to live in a big city and be a single earner and have a comfortable life. That is the issue we find ourselves in. And we sort of have to adapt to that reality. And, and part of adapting to that reality is finding things we want to do versus things that we have to do for for, for living. Sadly. Sadly. Yeah. No, I... I actually couldn't agree more. I hadn't thought of it in that way at all, but it's definitely true. And then the other, actually, the thing I thought you were going to say that made us different about our parents is the fact that we also don't have pensions or like guaranteed. This is more U.S. specific compared to other places. But they're finding that they didn't either. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. There was an illusion of a pension. And then, of course, they spent it when things got rough and they never replaced it. And right. Or it was invested in something they shouldn't have been investing in. Mm -hmm. That's true. I look at my own parents and, and they don't. They're not going to have a retirement. They have social security and they have their savings and they've got their house. And that's what's got to tide them over until they don't need to be tied over anymore, which is kind of a morbid thought. But and they've got their kids and we'll do our best to support them as well. But our parents don't have the safety that they thought they did when they were going into retirement. Most of them don't. Yeah. So not because I want to like, this is so fascinating to me, but I want to at least try to end on like a high note, a sort of, or like a, not a want, want, but like, a, oh, what could we do about it? And we have talked a little bit about what we can do about it and things yeah. like that. But because you have gotten, not, you know, now I'm going to have Chumbawamba stuck in my head, but you've gotten knocked down and you've gotten back up again multiple times in tech. I feel like that obviously builds resilience, myself included. I feel like, okay, well, I've been through like so much worse than this. So like I'm in a, myself, I'm in a much better place than I was the last time, not just financially, but, you know, headspace and maturity. And I feel like perspective, yeah, perspective. And I know that life has a way of working itself out when it needs to, as long as Mm -hmm. you keep putting one foot in front of the other and and doing your best. And so I have a lot of faith in that because it's what's helped me before. But for those people that are like, I mean, whether you're in a job or you're out of a job, I feel like half of our brain space is being spent right now thinking about the what ifs and the uncertainty. And to your point earlier, it's all over the place. You can't not know about this. You can't not feel it. And I think the other things I'm noticing is the fact that a lot of us who are in front of we, we feel like it's one of our superpowers, but it's what we've just learned. It's almost like we have sonar where we can kind of read people really well. You're resourceful. We know Yes, we're Folks resourceful. in this industry are resourceful. We are. And we, and we, we forget have... about the fact. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So they'll be like, my boss is just so unpredictable now. Like, I don't know what's going on. Or like leadership, this is that, whatever. Oh, and I have these people to manage and all this. We, I think we know that we're in our own heads, but we kind of forget that everyone else is too. And I think- That's perspective. Yes. That's understanding the, econ- or the, the environment around you and saying, it's not about what if this happens. What it's is fun. happening? Yeah. What do I need to do? right now for this thing. Now, once I've taken care of that, I can start thinking about what if, right? What I can start managing up. I can start working with my manager to put together a stronger business case, right? So I think one of the skills that a lot of people in this industry really want to have or should have 
is building a business case and presenting it to somebody and convincing them. Being convincing, being like communicative, that's super important. And regardless of where you are in and out of work, it's harder to do when you're out of work. But when you're in work, start taking on some of this responsibility, start communicating up, start, start producing the reports you need to, to convince them that you do need 20 people. You have 20 people, you need those 20 people. Why? How much, how much do they contribute to the bottom line as far as offsetting losses? Because they're not going away mm-hmm. without them, <laughs> right? Business goes down, the losses continue. Yes. We still need these people and this is why. And so th- that whole ability to develop a business case, present that business case outside your team or up within your management gives you more power and more control in the direction of your career and your people. And and I think that that is something when we universally that our teams need is that ability to build a business case and communicate it because that will serve you in managing up to your manager and they can manage up to their manager and that puts you in a much better position to deal with what's coming next. Oh and my gosh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, that's something I've been talking about on episodes for the last several weeks is sure. get those numbers together now, present your business case now. I had a conversation with several retailers, leaders in fraud for retail yesterday on the merchant side. And those were the questions being asked. And I know we're going to talk about it maybe on next week's episode. I think I'm just making a game day decision here because actually we didn't even really get to the questions, but that doesn't surprise (laughs) us. But there was a lot of conversation about how do I communicate to the business that I need my people and that we need to pay them more, even though now they're even asking, like, do you even need that person? And now here I am saying we need to be competitive to keep them. And one of the things I suggested yesterday that I, I didn't think was that like mind blowing, but several people started writing notes. I was like, oh, but, you know, looking <laughs> at how long it took to hire the last person on your team, right? How many yeah. days, what was the training? Right. Like, how long did it right. take until you could leave them alone? How many times, like talk to your recruiter, right? Where did they have to post it? What works they have to do? And then training them because there is that thought that, you know, fraud and customer service are the same things and they're worth the same. And they're also easily to replace. You can just take out one cog and put in another cog. That is not the case with fraud prevention, trust and safety, because those people have domain expertise about your business that no one else has. And that can't be trained in a manual. So that's definitely one thought. But those are all KPIs that should be part of your upwards reporting. Yeah, that reporting needs to happen well before the topic of workforce reductions happens. Yeah, because you're not in the room when that conversation occurs. And if the people in that room are making decisions on widgets, right? And I'm I'm totally diminishing that there are humans in those widgets. Yes, but but if they're making that decision at that level. They need that information in the room at the time, mm-hmm. not after the decision was made, trying to fight back because that yes. just isn't going to happen, right? The decision has been made. The calculations are done. The communications are in motion. It's really difficult. I'm not going to say you can't. It's really difficult to right. unwind that at that level. Right. It's kind of like how people say, build your network, not because yep. you need it now, but for when you need it. It's the same with KPIs and business, yep. all that. And yep. I think yep. that's something I really want to dive in with you next time on Let's as far as making the business cases, communicating them up, reporting in mm-hmm. KPIs. You did a really good job of that at StubHub and you had to. I mean, I think a lot of people look at team. what you did. <laughs> Look, I didn't build all that stuff. I didn't run all that. I did some of the reporting. But But how did you get that team? By reporting up to the business and making that business case. We cannot assume that everybody understands what we do in fraud prevention or why it's important. In fact, we need to assume that they don't know those things. And way too often, those of us who are really good at fraud fighting aren't good at realizing that we need to also talk about what we're good at. I think Right now, there's like the people that are good at talking about what they do, but they aren't actually good at doing the thing. And then there's the people that are really good at doing the thing, but aren't good at talking about it. And I think 
if you're in the I think I might be in the former camp. <laughs> I'm definitely in the former. And, well, I'm, yeah, I'm definitely in the last one. But whatever. Yeah. You were not in the forum. <laughs> you're so full of it. So full. Not, you wouldn't even be in my top like 10 or 30 people who are good at blowing up. So, Robert, this was such a good conversation. And it's so hard to stop talking to you because I know that the second we start recording, it's going to be just nothing but thoughtful stuff. And you help me think about things differently. And I hope that was the case for listeners as well. Why don't you come back next week? We'll dive into this um, more on making a business case on supporting your team, all those pieces. And I think in the meantime, I think you gave some people some good things to think about as far as what to do next. And also just to know we're not, misery does love company, even if we don't love misery. <laughs> You know, so there's that. <laughs> Indeed, I'd be happy to come back anytime. You are the best for so many reasons, but thank you so much for being willing to hop on now, being so giving with your time and just being a great, a great human. So thank you for that. Oh, thank you. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.